Welcome to Students Over Systems, a podcast that celebrates education freedom. I'm your host, Jenny Gentles. At Students Over Systems, we talk with the creators, advocates, and beneficiaries of education freedom. On today's episode, we'll be talking about school choice history, teachers' unions, and learning loss. For this important discussion, we're joined by Darrell Bradford. Darrell is the president of 50CAN, the 50-state campaign for Achievement Now, where he leads communications and policy, trains and recruits local leaders across the country, and inspires the National Voices Fellows with his wit, wisdom, and years of education reform experience. Darrell also serves on quite a few boards of organizations that prioritize students over systems, including Success Academy Charter Schools, Yes Every Kid, and the Alliance for Catholic Education at Notre Dame. Darrell, my friend, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jenny. How are you doing? Well, I'm happy to be bringing you into this conversation at Student Server Systems here at the end of our first year of the podcast. I thought you are the perfect person to talk about these issues that are really important to us at Student Server Systems. And again, that's school choice, teachers unions, and learning loss. We've talked about that a lot over, over the last year, and you're here to like bring it all home for us in 2023. Uh, but before we launch into our first topic, which is school choice policy history, let's start with your personal history. You grew up in Baltimore. You attended the St. Paul's School for Boys and received a bachelor's degree in English from the University of Pennsylvania. So to me, that sounds like the typical bio of somebody who's pretty bright and lives in either uh, New York or DC. So uh, tell us what your education was like, though, before enrolling in St. Paul's. Yeah. So um, again, th- thank you for having me. I'm happy you made your way through the list of all of your possible speakers and that I get to help you wrap, round, round out the year. Um, so uh, so like you said, I did grow up in Baltimore. I grew up in Southwest Baltimore. And uh, uh, I tell people a lot that one of the sort of formative uh, conversations I can remember was my mother and my grandmother talking about whose address we would use so that I could go to the middle school I was not zoned for, um, which was in the uh, the uh, Bolton Hill, now the Mount Royal section of, of Baltimore, uh, not the Sand- Sandtown Winchester section of Baltimore, which is where I, I grew up. Um, and it wasn't until much later in my life that I understood that they were having like the fundamental policy discussion about how most people navigate the school market. You know, you you get lucky, you you know, and, and you get a scholarship and you go to the school that helps you become the best version of yourself, which is actually what, what happened to me when I went to St. Paul's. Um, you know, only the first school I ever went to was a school I was zoned for. My aunt was a teacher in the Baltimore City Public, uh, public School System. So I had, you know, I was connected in that way. Like I had someone who looked out for me in a way that not every child has an opportunity to, you know, uh, we were sitting at the table talking about lying about our address, you know, which is the way most people practice, you know, school choice uh, around the country, or maybe not most, but but too many people practice it that way, you know, like Democrats, Republicans, rich people, poor people are all, you know, lying about where they live to get into the school that works for them, you know, so much for open to all. Um, and, uh, and, you know, the last sort of like public school I went to was actually the best one I went to. It was like the most coveted middle school, um, you know, at the time in, in Baltimore. And so I don't have anything against that school. It just was the wrong school for me. So this question of like fit is also incredibly important when we talk about this stuff. Um, and so, 
you know, I, I went to Penn. I was an English major. I rep for English majors. I think we have a role to play. Uh, and I uh, worked in the magazine industry for a very long time in Manhattan. Um, I'm, I'm obviously not from here, but I, I lived in Manhattan for a very long time. And then the magazine I was working for folded in August 2001, and then 9-11 happened. Uh, and so I spent a long time trying to figure out what I was going to do. And a friend of mine from college was like, oh, you know, my dad started this nonprofit. Maybe you can you can help him. And in April of 2002, I got on a plane and I went to Milwaukee to find out about charter schools and the Milwaukee Parental Choice Program and all this other stuff. And then all those conversations about like where we live and, and all the it like it all snapped into sort of policy sense for me. And so I've been very fortunate for like a long time now to work on uh, on these issues of making sure that, you know, your address is more important than your aspirations. Um, and that, you know, the color of your skin, who your parents are, and your zip code aren't the primary determinants of whether or not you get to go to the school that helps you become the best version of yourself. And that's how I met you. So That is how we met uh, long, long ago. Actually, you were working in New Jersey. And back then, our school choice advocacy pro- uh, focused on providing opportunities for low-income students who were yep. trying and failing schools. And you saw plenty of those in Newark and Belong and, and uh, beyond. I remember touring a school with you uh, that was doing something different, though. It must have been a, like a high-performing charter school in, in Newark and uh, providing opportunities for, for kids that they wouldn't otherwise have in a really tough district. Um, what did you learn from your years of working in New Jersey and spending time in Newark schools? Yeah. Um, so, a couple of things. One is that there's all the talent in the world in Newark. Um, you know, there are kids who can uh, invent a cure for cancer, write the next great novel, um, you know, program the next tech, you know, uh, solution that will improve our lives. Um, but opportunity isn't historically, educational opportunity isn't um, sort of available to them in the same way it is every place else. And so in a place like Newark, at least, and and Camden also where I've worked extensively, um, you know, there's been a fair amount of policy in place. In in New Jersey, uh, the, you know, the role of charter schools, you know, charter schools have been the policy lever for the most part. It's not like we didn't try to do more, but that's what happened. Um, and charter schools have played a vital role in helping those kids become the best versions of themselves. I, I can remember in um, 2019, I think is what it was, I gave the commencement speech at Uncommon Schools, which is, you know, their high, their high school, um, North Star, is one of, the best, uh, public, yeah, one of the best public schools of any type in the state of New Jersey. And the valedictorian was going to... Uh, to Princeton and no, 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 the valedictorian was going to Yale and the salutatorian was going to Princeton to study particle physics, you know, mm-hmm. and you know, the kids, they're just regular kids. They're just regular newer kids who somebody thought, you know, thought they deserved the same kind of education that kids in the richest districts got. And they were right to think that, you know, so, um, so I just, I want to highlight that. The other thing I would just say is that, you know, how we do education, and you know, a guy named Yoval Noah Harari, he does a great talk about this called Why Human Beings Rule the World, which you can watch on, on YouTube somewhere. Uh, it's, a, it's a TED talk. Um, you know, how we do education as we know it today is not how it's always been done. Um, and there's no reason why it has to continue to be done as we do it today. The purpose of education has changed 
many, many times <laughs> while we've had education. You know, the, the oldest education law in, in America, I can't even remember the year it's so old, is called the Old Deluder Satan Act, which is, which is like a Massachusetts Bay Colony law that said, listen, kids need to be in school because if they're at home and they don't know how to read, they're going to be vulnerable to, to the devil. Right. I mean, that that was a law. That was a real that was a real law. Right. Um, you know, there have been times where uh, national assimilation have, have, have been, you know, the priority of our education apparatus. There have been times when global competition. Right. Think Sputnik, et cetera, have been the um, the primary purpose, you know, primary reason for our education system. And so that like that is it's changed. And so what we know now is not what we have to have tomorrow. And I think that's incredibly important as well. Right. You've been alluding to this, but 50CAN, the organization that you lead right now, has a mission that um, that they are committed to ensuring that every child gets the education that works best for them, regardless of their zip code, the color of their skin, and how much money their parents make. That sounds nice. I'm on board for that. What are the specific policy proposals that complement that mission? What have you guys been advocating for over the years? Yeah, so I, I would love to say that I lead it, but I'm really employee number uh, number two. I, re, I report to the CEO, uh, and, and I'm, I'm lucky to do so. We have a great relationship. So um, we kind of have like uh, a, like a, a mission statement about what we think education should be for every child, and there are uh, sort of five promises built into it. We call that believe believe in better. Uh, and uh, and you can look those things up if if you want to. But to me, like the underlying policy um, kind of pillars are what are are what are really important because they help stand the whole thing up, right? So um, one of them is fun families, and that is about uh, rev- like overhauling and revitalizing school finance formulas. But it's also about giving families money, whether that's an ESA or a voucher or you know, like a, a, a micro grant or, uh, you know, any of these things, some of these things that happen with COVID reliefs, some in blue states, some in red states, you know, whatever, because um, I've just come to the point, particularly after the pandemic, where I realized that if you pay schools to be closed, they will be closed. And you have to give families real power in a relationship like that. And money is power, right? So that's kind of the first thing. The second thing is um, sort of codifying, supporting, and expanding the innovations of the pandemic. So, you know, whether or not it's changing licensure in public schools so the teachers in a region can teach in a state, you know, which is something that actually happened, which I thought was pretty cool, or micro schools and the growth of sort of, you know, nouveau school choice, right? Like somebody has to stand up for those things. Um, The third one, I just sort of say it as like tongue in cheek, but I call it a market for measurement. So, you know, at 50CAM, we care a lot about accountability. Like we've been traditional accountability people. And normally that is you give your annual assessment and you maybe do something with it. You know, Um, I've been making the argument to people that that information remains really important, but we shouldn't act like it's accountability because at best it's transparency. Right. Like uh, like nobody's really doing what we want with the data and states are becoming increasingly recalcitrant about releasing it even. Right. So so the idea that you're going to have this like an like an accountable relationship as we knew it in the NCLB days is like not really real um, anymore. Uh, and then at the same time, we have this huge sort of like proliferation of out of school options and all this other kind of stuff, which is very new. and 
you don't want to put your thumb on the scale of it because you want it to grow, but you do want to be able to answer the question for families of how do you know, right? And and that's a complicated question. And so I just described that as like a tension around like knowing what works, right? Or helping families figure out what works for them. So that's very important to us. Um, and then the, you know, the fourth one is just no boundaries. And by, you know, that's, it's kind of a school choice pillar in the same way that fun families is the history of redlining and residential assignment is not the highest best moment of the American experiment. Um, we're all better than that. And we know that we can make schools that work for kids without using your address as the primary proxy. Um, so there's just a, a mindset of, um, of abundance, that informs our, our policy under that thing. And so in our states, you know, we're working on ESAs and transportation and, you know, uh, tutoring and, you know, money to families and enrichment and a whole and a whole bunch of other stuff that builds up to, you know, hopefully the, the education system we think the country's kids deserve. All right. So something that I'm hearing in there sounds different than the school choice movement that we operated in, gosh, two decades ago. <laughs> Um, with the the fun families, the micro schools, the ESAs, that's sounding like you're embracing this movement towards universal education freedom. Is that accurate to say? Yeah, and, and I have a uh, a reason that some people might not suspect, but that is very important for why I'm doing that. Um, and uh, th that sounds very arrogant, but it's not meant to be. So you know, I didn't like I didn't get into the education freedom thing before it was called education freedom, the freedom thing, um, to, you know, to work on how, you know, uh, upper income families in the, in the suburbs access opportunity. Um, I got into it because I was a poor, I was a low income black kid and I care about low income black kids, right? Like that, you know, cause it's like you do things that are, that are kind of about you. Um, what I've realized over time is that the coalitions, the political coalitions we wound up building around those policies, right? So like early charter schools to close achievement gaps, this kind of stuff, right? Um, meant that our political constituencies are geographically confined and not diverse. And political constituencies that are not rich, not diverse and uh, constrained are not very good in statewide statewide policy fights, you know, for, for the most part. And so, um, uh, so that's the first thing. The second thing is just that, like, I've been sort of woke, like, beat down by life. You know, I can remember working on charter school stuff in New Jersey when um, there was a year that some soccer moms in Princeton decided that um, the moms in Newark were like corrupting the democratic experiment by deciding that they wanted to send their kids to charter schools. And they figured they had to stop that. And so in consecutive sessions, they were able to get a bill introduced that got out of the assembly, right? <laughs> they would have got out of committee um, that would have given a local override to charter, char to charter school authorizations, right? Because in New Jersey, only the state can authorize, the state Department of Education only authorizes, which would have meant there would never be any more charter schools in New Jersey. And I was like, this is outrageous. Like these soccer moms, they got my whole thing on lockdown. Like, how does this work? And what I've come to understand is that if something's not in it for everybody, it becomes incredibly difficult to promote or protect the, an agenda for someone who is the most put upon. And so I'm a universalist as a function of the fact that the coalition necessary to protect, you know, expanding opportunity in the way that I think most of us talk about has to have 
you know, uh, uh, low-income families for whom the school they're zoned for doesn't work in the same way that it has to have upper-income families in the in the burbs who are trying to pay for lacrosse sticks and tutoring, you know, um, because that that is a very diverse coalition. And so when I see people talking about like ESA policies now, like, you know, Arizona, they're like, I didn't get into this to subsidize, you know, upper income people going to private school. And I was like, yeah, neither did I, but you know, I'm, I'm also a realist <laughs> and, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm uh, so I'm bullish on universal policy now, regardless of the fact that it has been a journey. Well, those low income parents that we relied on for too long to defend the programs, to advocate for and, and defend the programs, we're up against a extremely powerful and well-funded adversary, and that's the teachers unions. And I'm sure you saw that every day that you worked in New Jersey and probably most days that you work in the, the priority states for, for, for 50 can now. Um, back in January 2019, you wrote a really important piece in the 74, and you said, I'll make it clear where I stand. I'm not only against the teachers' strikes, I'm hostile to them. So you didn't say I'm against teachers, quite the opposite, actually. Um, and you did have some choice words for, for teachers unions in this piece. And let's all remember, this was January of 2019, long before uh, the, the pandemic and the unions closed the schools for too long. Um, but why the hostility? Why are you against teachers' strikes? Not only against them, but hostile to them. Yeah, because like there's nothing that reveals more that the institution of public schooling is um, a proxy for, you know, like labor and essentially a social safety net for college educated people than teacher strikes. Um, there's no kid who wins when a compulsory service is de is denied, you know, <laughs> especially after the pandemic. I, I mean, the most like let's take a step back, right? So the uh, Teacher strike, a teacher strike is a manifestation of uh, one group's uh, uh, outsized control over a compulsory function of American government where if you don't do it, you can go to jail. I mean, so, so let, like, let's get the, st the stakes together, right? It is incredibly difficult to decide, yo, I'm not going to send my kid to my, to, to my neighborhood school. I either have to pay for my kid to go to a private school or I have to you know, uh, uh, make the financial sacrifices necessary to, to educate the, this child um, myself. If not, I have a, a compulsory responsibility to send my kid to the neighborhood school, which is run by, which is run by the government, right? Like, and I, I don't use the government as, as a pejorative term, but, but that's who runs it. And the government is in a, a, an exclusive uh, arrangement with the teachers union to give you your teacher. Right. And so that relationship is at like at eight places along there, not bent toward parents or kids right? <laughs> like in, in any way. And the fact that um, particularly during the pandemic, the schools that were closed the longest were the schools with all the black kids, all the brown kids who were the poorest kids. They wound up being remote the longest and they were in places with the strongest teachers unions. Those things, guess what? They are not a coincidence, right? That, that is an expression of what that relationship is about, presenting itself to us as Americans, right? And so the what happened during the pandemic, in particular when people, you know, and what was happening before the pandemic, because Oklahoma, uh, 
West Virginia, right, Arizona, had all had these huge teacher strikes and gotten these huge concessions. And then to the piece you talked about, you know, Los Angeles and Chicago with its ultra militant teacher union, they did the same thing. And then we had the pandemic. And now we're actually watching rolling teacher strikes because the, the body politic has been desensitized to the fact that schools can be closed for, all, for any reason now, not just a, a, a pandemic. And you can look at Portland to get a good, a good example of that, where, again, 45,000 kids, right? <laughs> the schools are closed for a month. And the deal that they got at the end was the deal that they basically started with. So, so there, there wasn't even actually a strike for a concession. There was a strike to show they could strike. And the only thing that brings that in line is parents having money and an opportunity to go someplace else, you know? So, because you could pass a Taylor law, I guess, right? And be like, strikes are illegal. But at, at this point, I'm I'm not sure that would do very much to arrest, pardon the pun, what seems to be a pattern of Columbus, Ohio, Seattle, right? Like we've seen multiple teacher strikes that deny kids learning in the same, in the same way that school, the school lockdowns did. Um, since since we got you know out of them, so so my relationship with teacher unions is like maybe there's a way to organize teachers that's way better than that. I'm not sure, quite sure what it is, but what I'm certain about is that that relationship is out of balance with American families, in particular with the neediest families who have the least least choice, like we talked about, least ability to get childcare, least ability to recover from, from these uh, uh, school disruptions. And something has to, to change the, to sort of level set those two things. Yeah, I, I I can't recommend that everyone read this piece more. Like you 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 basically called it what was coming during the pandemic, uh, well over a year before it it happened. And you said um, uh, they they have the downside of taking hostage these strikes and the union power have the downside of taking hostage low income families who already don't have a lot of leverage in a political fight that they for the most part can't can't opt out of. And so that was in reference to these to these Red for Ed and other strikes that are happening around the country. Um, and then we saw the pandemic hit. And yeah, those low-income families were held hostage. Yeah. Um, and they did not have leverage and they could not opt out. And now we see the incredible fallout, which is just not just frustrating, but it's so, it, it's so angering what happened. And we've been talking about the, the pandemic and the learning loss and the, and the fallout for a long time. But the strikes are still happening. So we, we haven't learned our lesson yet, or people aren't saying no to this yet, or they're not speaking up enough yet. And so you referenced no school November in Portland. The kids in Youngstown, Ohio, with, I mean, the proficiency rates there are heartbreaking. They missed the first month of school. Nobody paid attention to that yeah. because we're just like, it's fine. It's just a, a strike. We're four teachers. It matters. It matters. They miss, miss the first month of school. Yeah. And then, and then you're like, I mean, it's, it's, it's frustrating because like not... Not everything plays itself, you know, out along these lines, but I'm pretty certain that it plays itself along these lines. I mean, when you look at at least the social media for port for, for Portland, the Portland strike, you know what I see? A bunch of upper income white people uh, hanging out, tailgating and twerking to show that, that they're good citizens. Right. And, you know, what you don't see are the black families who are behind the curve because of the pandemic already, who just lost another year, another month of school. And let's let's recall, we don't at current have an American education system that's ever been good at helping kids catch up. 
You know, you can look at the at Mackie Raymond's work, which basically says uh, even getting back to where we were would require a, a, like a Herculean act of acceleration. Let me tell you what's not going to do that. Having cookouts for a month in the Rose City while people while, while kids are at home wondering what you're going to do. Right. Cookouts and dance parties. That's what I'm, that's what I'm saying. I, that wasn't hyperbole. I was, I was being serious. They literally had dance parties and they literally sat and, and uh, blocked a, a bridge as as well. Uh, people should be paying attention to what just happened in Portland. It's in, infuriating. Um, I do want to talk about learning loss before we, we t totally run out of time. Um, but what should parents do when it comes to teachers unions and these strikes? Do you have any recommendations? Yeah. And I mean, you know, I feel like school boards are a place where things go to die, but you have to pressure school boards to, um, to, to put up some credible opposition to this, right? Because if the unions decide they want to roll over, a school board could do something like say, hey, all right, we're just going to give everybody money or we're going to go into a contract with all the local private schools and you could just go to them, right? Or we're going to set up this like incredibly, you know, we're going to use what the COVID relief money we have left, what we didn't use on a parking lot and, uh, and, and bleachers, to give every family a thousand dollars, like or whatever, like they did in Virginia, so you can go get tutoring, right? Or you can go use out school or, or something like that. Like there are options that school boards have in these um, uh, in these conflicts, because that's what they are, right? That only parents can make them use, you know. Um, uh, otherwise, the incentives are aligned to roll over, you know. Um, so that that's the first thing. I think the. The second thing, though, is that, you, you know, we sort of started this talking about how the, the what education is about, right? What the purpose of it is has changed like multiple times. This hostage taking is only allowed because we accept the paradigm that is currently put before us. Right. And so the most important thing that I think any parent can do, and I, and I know this is like a, this is a policy thing. This isn't like actionable in the moment is accept that. Sure. You can go strike. Go strike all you want. I won't be here when you get back. I, give me my money. <laughs> I don't know. I'm done. I'm done with it. Right. And we, we were like before the pandemic, I think nobody was having that conversation. During the pandemic, people are like, man, we need to have this conversation. And now like. Kim Reynolds, Doug Ducey, you know, like uh, uh, what Florida, Arkansas, whatever these places, you can strike all you want, you know, do do the thing. I'm out, right? I'm going. I'm going to get, you know, the Honda of education. Like you do your Plymouth, you know, whatever that is. Um, and I don't, I don't say that to be flip. I just feel like all the incentives are being exposed in ways that are really important for people who internalize right now. And when somebody shows you who they are, you know, believe them. All right. I, I'm going to start yelling again if I go into details about learning loss. Also, we're like coming short on, on time. Um, let's offer some hope out there when it comes to learning loss. You and I both testified about it before Congress. And one of the things that you said that really struck me was that um, the harm of the last three years will be with us for the next 30 if something's not done. So who's doing the right thing when it comes to addressing the egregious learning loss that's a result of these closures um, during COVID and these ongoing closures uh, because of union strikes. Yeah, I mean the you know obviously like e ESAs in particular are among the the are in the vanguard, 
right? So, you know, Georgia almost got one done. Texas almost got one done. Arizona, you know, uh, uh, Idaho, no, Iowa, sorry. Um, you know, Arkansas, Florida, um, you know, got, got things done. So that's a thing. And that's really important, right? So we should continue to push to give families resources so they can solve their own problems if labor unrest means that you can't get your kid in the school, which is a thing now, you know. Um, uh, tutoring has been, has been a big deal. Um, Louisiana, that they, they, they passed the bill that basically made tutoring a right for kids who are behind, which is pretty awesome. Um, the Bloom, uh, Mike Bloomberg, his foundation has funded what they call Summer Boost, which is like high-impact tutoring for low-income kids in a bunch of charter schools, like nine cities, something like that. So that's that that's been um, super good. Uh, you know, like I like OutSchool actually. Um, that's like an online platform you can go to. You can get tutored, but you can learn photography. You can do all, all kinds of other stuff. You know, that's right. guitar lessons on there. Well, they're, they're, <laughs> they're, they're, yeah, they're, 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 there you go. Um, and then like really literacy is actually an incredibly important piece of this because it's even harder to catch up if you can't read. Um, and I, I'd say the, re the sort of revolution on science of reading has been really wonderful. Um, you know, like Louisiana banned three queuing, uh, New Mexico and Georgia and our network um, uh, passed laws last year to, you know, like promote, um, you know, how to actually teach kids to read, not how to guess what the words are. Um, New Jersey, I think, is thinking about is is thinking about that in our in our network. Um, so that's a uh, you know that's get on the reading train. I yep. guess. Yeah, well, Darrell, you recommended the Soul to Story podcast series uh, to me, and I got hooked. Yeah. And I was not the only one. So did a lot of state legislators, and and things are things are happening. So thank you for that recommendation, and thank you for all that Fifty Can's doing to make sure that good policies are passed. Um, in in response to all these things that we've been talking about. All right, last question: What is a myth about education freedom or school choice that bothers you the most, and that you'd like to dispel today? Yeah, so it's it's not a it's not a myth. It's kind of like a it's kind of a state of the opposition, right? So you know, I, I like, I don't think that uh, all private schools are better than all public schools or anything like that, right? I think that the school that works for you could be of any type, and that it is so important to match you with that school that we should align public policy in a way that where we're using things with more nuance than your address to, to make that determination. And I believe that because I lived it, right? It happened to me. Like I, I got the, I got, I went to public schools you would never normally go to if you had to be zoned to them. And I went to a private school you could never would go to unless you got lucky or had rich parents or a voucher or a scholarship, right? And so, so I talk about these things because in a really egalitarian way, I want other people to have the same kind of opportunities that I had. The thing I can never unwind is why so many people who went to private school are against school choice, <laughs> whether they're against education freedom or whatever you want to call it. And to me, the big question is like, okay, what is it that was so formative for you? that wound up having you in a state legislature in the position to set policy for millions of other people, that you are absolutely opposed to anybody else getting. <laughs> I just want to know what it is. I want somebody to state to, to give me a reasonable answer about that because I would sleep much better at night if I had it. Oh, those, those state legislators, they're stinkers. Oh, um, gotta love them, gotta love them. So. <laughs> 
All right. Well, Darrell, thank you so much for addressing these important topics with us. Thank you for all that you've done over a, a long period. I say a long period because I've been around for a long time too. Um, and um, yeah, and thanks for, for, for joining us today. No, thanks for having me, Jenny. I appreciate it. We hope listeners found today's conversation informative and encouraging. You en if you enjoyed this episode of Student Server Systems, please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to share this episode with your friends. To learn more about the work of the IWF Education Freedom Center, please visit iwf.org EFC. Thank you for listening to Students Over Systems. Until next time, keep celebrating education freedom and brighter futures.